Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, May 26th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to an open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. To the greatest extent possible, we stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Nathan Leaf, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and co-hosting with me today is Rich Larson. Rich, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Nate, today on Public Policy This Week, we will discuss Minnesota's bid to host the 2027 Expo in Bloomington, Minnesota. That means a World's Fair. That's pretty cool. Beginning with the first World Expo in London in 1851, 70 such international mega events have been hosted in cities around the world, organized around a theme that seeks to improve human knowledge and highlight advancements towards scientific, technological, economic, and social progress. The most recent World Expo, hosted by the United Arab Emirates in the city of Dubai from October 2021 through March of 2022, attracted more than 24 million visitors. The most recent specialized expo, hosted in 2017 in Astana, Kazakhstan, was attended by more than 3.8 million visitors. Both events generated hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars in revenue for the host nations and created tens of thousands of jobs. To help us understand Bloomington, Minnesota's effort to host the Expo in 2027, we are joined on the show today by John Stanek. Judge Stanek is the president and CEO of Minnesota USA Expo 2027, the organization coordinating the effort to bring the 2027 Expo to the United States and Minnesota. He previously served as a Hennepin County District Court Judge, as Minnesota's Chief Deputy Attorney General, and as president of Quest Communications in Minnesota and North Dakota. Judge Stanek has also held executive leadership positions in numerous civic organizations, including Ronald McDonald House Charities, the Science Museum of Minnesota, and the Minneapolis Regional Chamber of Commerce. Judge Stanek, Your Honor, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And as we start, I just want to say I'm a big fan of your thoughtful dialogue on important public policy issues and coming up with solutions. Uh, that kind of dialogue and that kind of solution-driven uh, emphasis is needed more than ever. So congratulations to you on what you do. Those are those are very kind words, Mr. Stanek. We, we appreciate that. Uh, Nate and I are in the, uh, the KYMN studios in the heart of beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, I'm going to get a big kick out of this answer. Where are you this morning, Judge Stanek? Well, here on Friday, I'm actually in Brussels, Belgium, where we're meeting with some delegates of the uh, Bureau of International Expositions, the group that will make the decision on who should host the 2027 uh, World Expo. Previously, on Monday of the week, we were in Paris for a meeting with the BIE and the other four countries that are competing for the Expo in 2027. And then we had a series of meetings with BIE countries throughout the week. We had uh, representatives of the bid committee, representatives of the state U.S. State Department, and there was another delegation from Minnesota, Minnesota Africans United, along with two of our board members from Minnesota USA Expo, who were in Paris this week to talk to African nations in particular and solicit their support. So we've had a full week. Uh, we're winding it up in Brussels today with some additional lobbying for effort, and then it'll be back home, but uh, we're coming into the home stretch. Well, that sounds like a very interesting uh, bid process and lobbying process. I'm going to want to get into details about that, but before we do, can we get into a brief history of the World Expo to better understand its significance? Can you tell us a bit about how you specifically became interested in this effort to bring an expo to Minnesota, um, you know, out of several dozen major metropolitan areas in the United States? Why the Twin Cities and why did you get involved? 
That's a great question. And my involvement in this effort really goes back to about uh, 2015, 2016. Starting in 2011, 2012, the United States had lapsed its membership in the Bureau of International Exposition. So it's been nearly 40 years since we had an expo or World's Fair in the United States. A group of really committed uh, Minnesotans, former Secretary of State Mark Ritchie, Marilyn Carlson Nelson, Kathy Thunheim, Bonnie Carlson with the Bloomington Convention and Visitors Bureau, and a number of other Minnesota leaders had the vision to have the United States rejoin the BIE and seek an expo. And there was a proposal uh, to host a specialized expo in 2023. I was involved in business and civic leadership positions at that point, so I came became aware of what was happening. And in fact, uh, I had agreed to help organize the effort if we had been successful winning the bid in 2023. That didn't happen, uh, but the United States went back and has renewed the Minnesota proposal for 2027. And a group of leaders from Minnesota and the federal government asked me if I'd step in and work with others to help lead the effort. And I was honored to do so on behalf of our our state and our region and the United States. So it's going back to that group of visionaries that got us back in the BIE from Minnesota and carrying it forward to where we're at today. Going back 40 years. So does that mean the last expo in the, uh, the United States was in Knoxville? It was in New Orleans. New Orleans. And, okay. um, it, yeah. And so it's been quite a period of time, especially given our rich tradition. The United States has hosted more world expos or world fairs than any country other than France. So it was kind of odd to be out of this. And we're really looking forward to getting back in the game. Well, we are back in the game. We're hoping to host. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, then before we get into the details of, of what uh, Expo 2027 would look like, uh, and and your work to uh, t- to get it here. Can we talk a little bit about the uh, the origins of, of the World's Fair? What sure. was the what was the significance of the Great Exhibition of 1851, commonly known as the First World Expo, and uh, how did it shape the subsequent history of expos? Right. So get this, and this is relevant to the times, and also relevant to the, one of the themes of your show. It was to really. Um, showcase uh, industrial and cultural advancements for the betterment of the entire world with an emphasis on uh, technology. So that 1851 Expo uh, focused on uh, a new invention called the telegraph, and Mm. it was well attended um, by over 6 million people, which was approximately the size of Great Britain at the time, and threw off a profit that in today's terms would be about $159 But it was the notion of highlighting advancements and innovations that further mankind uh, going forward. And because of the great success of that expo, this became a permanent feature on the world stage. And so there have been many expos, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of them both, um, that are iconic in terms of their structures or their advancements. But it really started with pulling the world together to highlight innovation and in ways new technologies or new innovations could uh, help all of us uh, to have a better world. So then in that light, how have these expos evolved over the last 170 years since that first expo in terms of, I guess, themes and scale and, and impact on host cities and participating countries? Yeah, there has been a constant emphasis on innovations, and um, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, as it's connected to our proposed theme. But it also, ironically, led to some of the world's iconic structures. For example, the uh, Great Expo in Paris, they decided to construct this uh, uh, structure known as the Eiffel Tower, which was (laughs) extremely controversial at the time. People thought, why are we taking up all this space with this big structure and the original plan was to develop that or to uh, uh, to build it as a temporary structure for the expo think of the world without the Eiffel Tower I mean it's Mm -hmm. iconic and when we were in Paris this week it was literally down the street so it's something in that not only the innovations over time of uh, steam engines and the telegraph and the telephone and we can go on and on And then in the domestic context, uh, we can think of things like the Space Needle in Seattle. Just about everybody recognizes the Space Needle. That was constructed in connection with the Seattle World's Fair, excuse me, World Expo, and has also been another iconic structure. And on on more 
you know, our neighbors to the north in Canada had an expo in Montreal, and uh, that expo uh, served as the basis for the Montreal Expos baseball team. So expos have been around us our entire lives, and for at least a generation, I remember as a young lad hearing about the Space Needle in Seattle. It was part of my uh, upbringing. I wasn't fortunate enough to make it to other expos that were subsequently held in the United States, but we've missed almost a generation of Americans who have been able to participate with the World's Fair or World Expo, and it's time to change that. And as a matter of fact, when an international delegation came in October to the United States um, to test the validity of our bid, um, they asked, well, why do you want to expo back in the United States? And I tapped into this proud heritage with a personal story, and it was a story of two gentlemen farmers from Minnesota who saved their money to go to the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. And those gentlemen farmers, one of them was my mother-in-law's uh, grandfather. Hmm. He bought a commemorative plate that has been passed down through the year, the years, and I'm now the proud holder of that family heirloom. He talked for the rest of his life about the impact of going to a World's Fair in St. Louis. We need to do that for my generation and younger generations and get back into the world community and embrace this as just a wonderful experience. So that's a little bit about the history and some of the structures and, and highlighting all always the innovations in technology and advancements in medicine and science and technology. I also happen to know, and I don't know which World's Fair it was or when, but the hamburger was introduced to society <laughs> at a World's Fair. And where would this, where would we be today without the hamburger? So there it is. It's hard. It's hard to imagine. I mean, we're coming up <laughs> on Memorial Day weekend. What would be, what would we be cooking? Just exactly. <laughs> no, nothing but sausages. That would be it. And, and bratwurst. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we, uh, we, I, I, we really do want to talk about what, what you're doing, Jim, but before we get into that, can you expand a bit on, the thematic rules of, of World Expos and, and, and promoting cultural exchange and, and technology, uh, technological advancements and, and international cooperation. Sure. So basically there are two kinds of expos that exist. Well, three actually. There's a horticultural expo. But the kinds of expos that people in the United States are most familiar with are World Expos, which are held um, and they last six months, and that is an opportunity for nations of the world to come together to highlight their country's attributes um, and their technological innovations. What we're bidding for is called a specialized expo, and these 90-day events are structured around a particular theme, and the idea there is tapping into the rich heritage and legacy of expos to bring the world together around a common conversation related to a theme. Ours is healthy planet, healthy people, healthy planet, health and well-being, wellness and well-being for all. And so we're hoping to showcase, in addition to the magnificent things about the United States and the magnificent things that will showcase by other participating nations, really a deep dive on individual health, population health, and the health of the planet. And so these are two different kinds of expos. One's longer. And the other one is specialized, a shorter one, and that's what we're bidding for in 2027. Okay, interesting. Uh, for our listeners, you are listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host Nathan Leaf and I are talking with Judge John Stanick, President and CEO of Minnesota USA Expo 2027 in Bloomington, Minnesota, about Bloomington, Minnesota's bid to host a world expo. Let's turn our attention now to the specifics of the bid for the 2027 expo. What were the key steps involved in the process of Bloomington uh, creating and crafting a bid to host an expo? And how did the city determine its suitability and readiness to host such an event? Well, this goes back to that 2016, 27, 2017 era when the United States and Minnesota were bidding for the opportunity to host a specialized expo in 2023. That, by the way, was awarded to Argentina, but that expo did not happen because of the pandemic, um, and so it didn't happen. But the infrastructure largely for this bid was formed back in that period of time. The city of Bloomington had a site that was identified adjacent to the Mall of America, 
that would be sufficient land to construct the pavilions and structures that would need to be uh, need to be in place to host what we estimate will be 14.3 million visitors, 7.6 uh, unique visitors. And I think from the city of Bloomington's perspective, it was a way to advance the theme, but also a way to drive economic development on that site that will be hopefully uh, not only something that highlights the theme of healthy people, healthy planet, but has a legacy impact. These structures that will go up will be used. There will be job creation to in the run-up to the expo, during the expo, and structures that can hopefully be theme-related on a going-forward basis. So I think from the city of Bloomington's perspective, it was a way to serve as the host location for the United States and also a way to drive important economic development and tourism to Bloomington and our region. So the city came together and was involved in the last bid. They carried that forward to acquire a couple parcels adjacent to the Mall of America. And the theme that was set last time of Healthy People, Healthy Planet, the reason that was a theme last time is it highlighted a number of important industry clusters in Minnesota. We are known for health and well-being, and we think about the Mayo Clinic or the University of Minnesota Hospitals. We think about, in terms of well-being, we have amazing internationally recognized institutions like Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. Think about food safety and security, where we have companies like Cargill and Ecolab in our community. Think about medical technology with Medtronic and others. And so the theme of well health and well-being for all, healthy people, healthy planet, we have a core strength in that in Minnesota that we thought we can bring the world together around conversations how to improve things. And then what happened between 2017 when the first bid went in and this time? A global pandemic. And so if the theme was relevant before the pandemic, the feedback we're getting universally in connection with this campaign is this theme is even more relevant in 2027 as we go forward. And just a couple data points on that. Um, one one is um, if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, a couple of our competitors have evolved their theme from their original proposal to say, and oh, by the way, health and well-being, that's a really good thing. Uh, so that's been gratifying to see, and we've got, there's a great reception around the theme. It resonates with all countries of the world, um, and especially coming out of the pandemic. And this is just something that's core to Minnesota and what we have to offer the world. And so we've had a, we've had a wonderful reception. If it was a relevant theme back then, it's even more relevant now. And this would be the first theme, uh, the first specialized expo of this nature that's focused on health and well-being of individuals, population, health, and the planet. So we have a unique proposal that has universal applicability, and if the pandemic taught us anything, is we're, if we didn't know it before, we're all interconnected in this world. John, are you getting support for, for, from, for the proposal from corporate partners, people like, you know, if you're doing health and well-being in Minnesota, you're getting yes. Mayo, Medtronic, folks like this? Absolutely. Um, early on, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota was one of our anchor sponsors. Um, the Mayo Clinic is a supporter. Uh, we've had support from other sectors of the economy. I, I probably will leave somebody out, so I won't hmm. go through uh, the whole list. But I would say to fund the bid effort, about 90% of the funding that we've received from community partners has been from business mm -hmm. and about 10% from various government or non-governmental organization and then some individual philanthropy as all. Well. So this has been really driven as a source of civic pride and building for the future by corporations and uh, those organizations that have participated with Hennepin County is another example. This would be a major economic uh, development program uh, in the city of Bloomington, county of Hennepin. So Hennepin County is coming. We've had support from the state of Minnesota. So yeah. it's this is something that we've really emphasized, too, in the international community, something we do well in Minnesota. We run big events, and we do them well. And people leave going, that's an amazing place. We want people that come to the expo to come back. We want them to invest uh, in our state, but we also have a wonderful legacy of public-private partnerships that the public sector and the private sector work together for the good of all. So we've been, we're very appreciative of the supporters that have got us to this point, uh, and we couldn't have, we literally couldn't have done this without their assistance. Well, the interesting thing about the pandemic then is that you have to prepare a bid 
uh, and get everything ready in unprecedented circumstances. So you have to visit, I presume there is uh, visits to the recent expos with the stakeholders in the United Arab Emirates and the Japan expos. Talk a little bit about that, the unique challenges that faced and, and how the BIE either was involved or helped you uh, accomplish everything you needed to accomplish. Right. It was, uh, we took, uh, there were a couple delegation trips from Minnesota to the Dubai Expo to just get a feel for it, to build relationships. We broke up into groups and we delivered letters um, on behalf of the United States government to each of the pavilions, each of the countries. But in that era, when we were traveling, we were still in a masked environment and there were COVID uh, test requirements to enter and exit countries. So if you think about where we're at today and when we started this, there was definitely still the leftover impacts from COVID. It was not over. People were still, I mean, they're still getting ill today and dying, but it was really a big issue uh, that we had to navigate. The BIE required that the General Assembly meetings we went to, everyone be masked. And we were just talking about in this most recent uh, trip to Europe. I believe this is the first time we've been, I guess the second time now that we've been into France um, and in this trip into Belgium, where we did not have testing requirements, we did not have masking requirements. But what the question also implicates is as we plan for this, we also need to plan for contingencies that might make this potentially a digital or remote expo. And so not only is that a good idea to just be prudent and planning for if something of a pandemic nature were to occur that we could still host the event, but it also is something that, as technology has evolved, we certainly want people to come to Bloomington. We want people to come to the Twin Cities. We want them to come to the state of Minnesota. We want them to see all the things we have to offer. We want them to spend their money while they're here. We want to make a good impression so they come back and they invest in our economy. Um, but we have to prepare for a digital possibility. And as a matter of fact, we think there are tremendous opportunities to monetize those digital visits to the expo because not everyone in the world is going to be able to come to Minnesota for this world expo. How can we create an experience related to visiting the expo or in particular the programming related to health and well-being that people can access across the globe and feel like they can participate in the expo? So when I threw out those numbers of 14.3 visitors, we think there's a possibility possibility of a much larger participation digitally and so we're building all these contingencies and the bi requires us to do so how what's our plan to ensure the safety of the participants that's great that's great we talked a little bit about uh corporate sponsors but i want to dive a little bit deeper into a discussion about the players in the process because in 2010 there was only one north american candidate city that intended to bring the expo back to this continent since vancouver hosted in 1986 and that was edmonton for the 2017 expo but they didn't even end up submitting a bid because the Canadian government declined to approve its portion of funding for the costs of the Expo project. Can you introduce our listeners to the players uh, who were important to the bid process here, whether from the governor's office, the state legislature, uh, city officials, or, or local business leaders who helped ensure that Bloomington's bid for Expo 2027 would move forward? And at what point um, does the U.S. government get involved and give Bloomington, Minnesota, its blessing to be uh, the national bid to host the Expo? Yeah, and the short answer is all of the above being involved, but you don't want the short answer. I think you want to get a little flavor for how this came together. Some and of so the most important personalities, yeah. Exactly. So it started with local leadership in the city of Bloomington and in the Twin Cities. Um, you know, Bloomington renewed its commitment to be the host location to secure a site that we could build on. Um, it then went up to um, uh, regional and state leadership. So the governor, members of the legislature, members of our congressional delegation, on the political side of things, this is something that the United States getting into the Bureau of International Expositions was originally started under President Obama that continued and furthered under President Trump and President Biden's been supportive. I've said in some of my presentations in the community, it might be the only thing that Presidents Obama, Trump and Biden have agreed on. But there's been tremendous national bipartisan support. The same thing is true within our state legislature and within our federal delegation. And as a matter of fact, in the U.S. Congress itself, the vote to rejoin the BIE was unanimous in Congress. 
It's been supported by our senators and every member of our congressional delegation as we tour and talk to uh, delegates from across the globe about what the support looks like for this. I mean, we're very fortunate. Our senators, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, has been with this project and a supporter forever. Same thing with Senator Smith. And now with the change of control as a result of the most recent election, uh, Representative Tom Emmer is the number three ranking Republican in the House of Representatives. And so it's been very compelling to the world where other countries see shifts in governments that maybe they were for this before and now they're not for it. That's historically been true. Uh, we have bipartisan support. And so the Minnesota effort was put together. It uh, layered onto the political leadership has been corporate and civic involvement. So we have support from the major business organizations in the state. We have support from the major corporations in the state. And we have support from a range of cultural arts theater throughout the state of Minnesota. So we've really brought all public, private, and civic centers, sectors of our economy together in support of this. We then had to make a presentation to the U.S. Department of Commerce. The Department of Commerce designates who is going to be the official bid of the United States. And we were successful in getting the support of the U.S. Department of Commerce. Then they handed us off or were handed off to the State Department to actually run the bid effort because the State Department, we have ambassadors in every foreign capital, no better lobbyists than people on the ground being able to talk to leadership in foreign capitals. You know, we're fine, and little Johnny from Minnesota can go and talk to people, but it's a lot more impressive when our U.S. ambassador on the ground in that foreign capital is doing it. So it started local. It built, built out to regional. It was a state uh, effort that showed strong support. We leveraged that to get the support of the Department of Commerce to be the official bid of the United States, and we've been working closely with the White House, the State Department, the Department of Commerce, and leadership from all those sectors in Minnesota. I'm still hung up on the fact that you got a unanimous vote out of Congress. I know. That's, that I is, know. In this day and age, that, that, that should be absolutely impossible. That makes this a, but uh, it, a, a no-brainer yeah, but kind isn't of situation. It, isn't it cool to think in this day and age where there's a political divide, there are still places where we can all come together to say, this would be a really great thing for us to host, to be involved with the international community, and quite frankly, in our state, to bring visitors here to promote economic development, tourism, cultural and educational exchanges. Um, the benefits of this are enormous. People see that, and I think it's really encouraging that we can find common ground around projects like this and be a part of the world community. So you're absolutely right. It's really encouraging. And it's not the way it goes on every issue these days. <laughs> no, not even a little bit. But maybe there's uh, there's nothing that can bring us all uh, together better than uh, competition from outside of the uh, the country. And I'm interested uh, to talk more about the uh, um, the, the competition here. Uh, what other right. cities uh, in the world are are are, are vying to, to host the expo? And to what extent yes. do the proposed themes you know play a role in the evaluation process? Yeah, the so we have four competitors, Belgrade, Serbia, um, we have Malaga, Spain, we have Phuket, Thailand, and we have uh, uh, the, the Patagonia region of Argentina also has a proposal. So the themes vary from uh, health and music and, and play, excuse me, play and music. Uh, as part of this, uh, Malaga, Spain is focused on the urban city of the future, uh, Thailand is focused on prosperity. So each country has a little bit different theme. We were the only ones that we were the first bid. We were the first country to raise our hand and say, we're going to be making a bid. So we were in first. The others have come in with their theme. I think based on the response we've been getting to our theme of healthy people, healthy planet, I mentioned earlier, some of the countries have modified their themes to be our theme, oh, plus health and wellness. Our theme plus, oh, health and wellness. So that's been gratifying to see. And I think it I can tell you from previous visits, previous lobbying efforts, and this week in Europe, talking to delegates, um, the universal consensus. I mean, there are, you know, different countries have strategic alliances and countries that will vote for them as members of the BIA because they're more strategically aligned on a mm -hmm. range of issues. Mm -hmm. Europeans look at European countries, et cetera, et cetera. But the one thing we get as universal positive theme back is related to the theme the relevance of the theme and how this can come alive. And if I could just talk about that for one minute, we've approached this with a great deal of humility. We have pointed out that 
this is not a situation where the United States has all of these issues figured out. Indeed, we have some of the greatest disparities in the world when it comes to things like maternal mortality rates, especially with low-income populations. And so we've got work to do. This is about convening the world for a conversation about and shaping the dialogue so that before the expo, during it, and afterwards, we're having a conversation about how we can advance this for the entire human race across the planet. Well, you mentioned one of those cities was um, had a thematic uh, city of the future, which I imagine involves a lot of new, uh, clean, renewable energy technologies. And I'm curious about um, carbon footprint, because that's a, right. a, a factor in the evaluation of any new projects these days. So to what extent is was that an, an issue um, for the expo in planning, in construction, and in actually running the event? How was uh, carbon footprint a factor in the crafting of your bid, and how important is it in the bid evaluation process? It's extremely important, and as a matter of fact, it was mandated by the BIE that each of the countries submitting a proposal address issues like carbon footprint, impact on the environment, and sustainability. So it was it was a core issue that we addressed um, in the architectural renderings and design that was presented as part of our bid and were discussed during the inquiry mission in October when they came to test the validity of our bid. It got a lot of questioning. And of course, um, a lot of the structures that we're thinking about developing or pavilions that will be constructed, some of those will be permanent structures. Others will be temporary structures that will have be built with sustainable materials. Um, we are talking about the ways that we can use uh, solar power, other forms of energy. Um, it's not surprising in the land of 10,000 lakes. And as we've said, 10,000 is just a dump. Uh, down payment. We've actually got many more than 14,000. But the ish. water fee. <laughs> exactly. And so um, the whole issue of tapping into the environment and protecting the globe is part of the theme and it's part of what we've emphasized. It's an interesting thing too as it relates to the site itself because immediately to the north is the highway system and the airport, but immediately to the south is the Minnesota River. Uh, uh, natural wildlife uh, refuge mm -hmm. area, which is protected wildlife. And so it's in Minnesotans' DNA to protect the environment and talk about that. And it's been something the BIE insisted on. They found that we met their requirements for sustainability and carbon footprint and other issues. And as we, if we're fortunate enough to win the bid and do the final design work for the site, it will be front and center with those discussions. Well, the scope of the bid process that you've outlined for us is very impressive. I can only imagine the uh, feeling of accomplishment and relief that must have accompanied the final submission of the bid. So when did that happen? And was there any celebration simply for completing the bid process? And, and maybe you could give us a little bit of a uh, uh, look into the future as to what happens next now. Sure. It was, as you indicate, it was a major process developing the dossier. It's a French treaty-based organization, so it's not a bid, it's a dossier. Mm -hmm. um, we put a lot of effort, a lot of people. There were 14 separate sections of the dossier that we needed to address specific issues that were brought up by the BIE. So a lot of work by a lot of people went into that, as is not uncommon with big proposals. It was due on June 7th. We were kind of right up to the wire. We had to have uh, a number of copies printed in English, a number of copies printed in French, and a number of flash drives. And because we're Minnesotans and we're very conservative about things, if we missed the deadline, we would have been out. So that was not an option. So we came close enough to the uh, deadline that I actually hopped on a plane with a carry-on luggage filled with documents I had a litigator's briefcase in my backpack, also filled with documents, I think 250 flash drives. I will tell you when I went through TSA at MSP Airport, they pulled me aside and said, you know, what's this? It looks like you have like a change of underwear, a toothbrush, some toothpaste, shaving cream, and a razor, but what's all this stuff? And I, you know, I embellished maybe a little bit, and I said, I'm the official representative of the United States government delivering these bids to the Bureau of International exhibitions in Paris so that Minnesota and the United States of America can host an expo. Um, if I could just build out this in a little more, I then checked into my hotel. The room wasn't ready, and they said, well, we can keep your luggage here in the lobby, 
they didn't have a safe storage area. I sat for four and a half hours before my room was ready, <laughs> keeping my eye on those documents because there was not going to be a failure to deliver on our part. I will tell you that after I delivered them um, to the Bureau of International ex, ex, uh, Exhibitions and it was in place, uh, I walked back to my hotel. I took in the sights of Paris and I, I think I stopped for a glass of champagne at about 1030 in the morning. after. <laughs> so the, the delivery process was very personal and there was a glass of champagne to say, I think it was accompanied by a baguette. So, All right. so now we know a little bit about how the guy who uh, hands off the nuclear football feels when he's right. <laughs> yeah, nervous the whole way. Right. It's like, it, it, we, you know, but think about that, put in all this effort and like you missed the deadline by 35 minutes. That wasn't going to happen. Okay. So, and so next steps, you want me to talk a little bit about what happened. Absolutely. There. So, yeah, so then, you know, we put in the bid, and then an inquiry mission came to the United States of America in October. It was a week-long, part of it in Minnesota, part of it in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> and if I could take just a couple minutes to talk about that, it might be of interest to your listeners. Please. Um, it, it's great having relationships with the State Department and Customs and Border Control, and it's great having a sponsorship with uh, Delta Airlines, because when the delegation flew into the Twin Cities, it was on a Sunday afternoon. I was, first of all, from the cockpit, they announced that we're happy to greet and welcome to the United States and to Minneapolis-St. Paul, a delegation from the Bureau of International Expeditions who's here to evaluate whether the United States should host the World's Expo, World's Fair for the first time in 40 years. Applause. I was able to get through, um, because of these uh, high-powered people that were wanting to support the bid, to literally greet the delegation right outside the cockpit door as they came. We had a, a dinner that evening to just get to know each other to break bread. On Monday morning, we met at the RBC building in downtown Minneapolis, and so the governor and lieutenant governor came and greeted uh, the delegation. as we. And then we went through each section. That night, the governor hosted a reception at the governor's residence for the delegation and supporters of the bid. On Tuesday, um, we went to Bloomington, where we met at the Bloomington Convention and Visitors Bureau. And it wasn't really tricky on our part, but we arranged the room that it looked out through grass, glass windows on the airport, Minneapolis in the distance, hotels up and down the Bloomington Strip, uh, infrastructure, you know, a highway, light rail transit. We walked the site. And, you know, we, we laughed about it with the delegates later. They were literally, our theme was we're expo ready, right? I mean, we are ready to go. You don't have to worry about whether the airport's going to have capacity, if we have hotel rooms, you know, if there's going to be stuff to do. You can see it all right here. So they were kind of a little bit hostage for the entire day to see this. We had a reception for them that evening. And then on Wednesday, we had a, a meeting. Our meeting was in St. Paul in room 15 of the state capitol, which was one of the ornate um conference rooms and we had a press conference with the BIE leadership governor walls senator klobuchar myself uh before we left for washington dc we went wheels up to washington dc um while there the first meeting the president and vice president were out of town but the national security advisor welcomed the delegation to the roosevelt room of the white house which was the president's office before president roosevelt and the construction of the oval office so a lot of history um it was a great presentation by the national security advisor jake sullivan and in connection with that, he also said, and oh, by the way, this is important to the president. It's important to me, but I'm also from Minnesota. So, you know, by that point, we were here on the second day, kind of a fun story. They said, you're all smiling. You seem so happy. You're so nice. I said, actually, there's a term for that, Minnesota nice. Uh, so we were able to get him in, peek into the Oval Office, the press room, rock in the Rose Garden, very impressive to the foreign visitors. The next day, we went to the State Department where Secretary Blinken uh, greeted the group, and uh, we had just a great time. And as a result of all those discussions over the course of the week, our bid was found viable. That allows us to continue. The vote is scheduled um, for June 21st, so less than four weeks away. This is the final push. Uh, we, in between there, we had some presentations to the General Assembly. And when we were in Paris for those presentations, we took that time also to lobby individual countries and have now fully engaged the the state department has the ambassadors across the globe leadership of the from the white house the state department the department of commerce the national security council and the federal government also working on our behalf so it's been a lot of work and uh we're coming down to the home stretch john tell us again how long have you been working on this 
Yeah, so, I mean, the Minnesota group started back in 2011, 2012. This effort really for these data points of uh, – Announcing our candidacy was in the in the in 2021 in the fall of 21. As, as a matter of fact, I it was late in 2021. We were supposed to go to Paris for a general assembly meeting that was canceled because of the pandemic. So, the Secretary of State, the Governor Dr. Joseph Lee of the Hazelden Foundation, the Lieutenant Governor Mayor Tim Bussey of Bloomington, myself, did a remote presentation to the BIE late in that year and then 2022 was filled with prepare the dossier file the dossier prepare for the inquiry mission get an a on our inquiry mission uh, uh, findings and now we're gearing up for the vote on june 21st so it's been close to two years of intense effort with regard to this bid yeah so okay with the big day coming up um, yeah, is, is the awarding um, of, of the winning bid, a, is this a public affair? Um, it is. Well, yes and no. Um, so the way it's going to work on the 21st is each country will have 20 minutes to kind of make its closing argument. And so we've lined up a couple speakers and a heart touching uh, video, which highlights our state and highlights our nation. So each country will make a presentation. Then the room will be cleared of everyone literally everyone, and the BIE delegates who are entitled to vote will be identified. Uh, They will be given a machine to vote, and they will be the only ones left let back into the room. We have um, each of the competing companies. We toured the site on Monday of this week. Each of us will have space within the facility to watch the deliberations. Uh, The winning country will have an opportunity to hold a press conference with the BIE leadership, and it will be telecast um, on the BIE website. They have a YouTube link, and it's so it will people can watch it real time. Uh, if anybody from Minnesota or the United States wants to watch it, you'll know as we know on each ballot. And I can talk a little bit about balloting if you'd like, but it will it will be on the Bureau of International Exhibitions BIE website with a link to the voting, so they can see the presentations and the votes. You got twenty minutes to make your 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 final all. I, all I can think of is, where's Prince when you need him, right? <laughs> well, um, Prince has been with us um, uh, throughout, not surprisingly. It was kind of funny. I mean, this is a story about the one of the delegates during the inquiry mission is from El Salvador. She spent, uh, uh, her education was in the United States. And on day one, she said, this is an amazing place because you're the home of Bob Dylan and Prince. And mm-hmm. so we've featured some Bob Dylan and some Prince music. They're iconic. But what was really impressive to me the last day of the inquiry mission, she goes, you keep talking about Bob Dylan and Prince, but you have soul asylum and the replacements. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, as much about Minnesota music as I do, but I, I love we this one. Have, and, and of course now uh, we have, you know, a uh, 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 major entertainer of the moment, Lizzo, yeah. who, so we, we have played the music card. I assure you. Good. That's good. That's our ace in the hole there, John. You're and, listening. I, and if we win, I, if we win, I can bet that in addition to a champagne bottle popping, it might be let's go crazy. All right. <laughs> You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Nathan Leaf, and alongside is my co-host, Rich Larson, and we are talking with Judge John Stanek, President and CEO of Minnesota USA Expo 2027, about Bloomington, Minnesota's bid to host a World Expo. All right, so let's indulge ourselves for a second. Let's assume that you get the good news, you win the bid, and we all go crazy, and there's a well-deserved party outside of First Avenue, and so it's just fantastic, and the whole thing. (laughs) And then... The work begins, right? What are the major logistical and infrastructure uh, challenges that Bloomington and the Twin Cities will have to uh, uh, put together to prepare for something like this? And yeah. what's the plan to, to overcome those challenges? Yeah, and, you know, using a Minnesota metaphor, this thing is a hockey stick if we win. You know, the bid, yeah. I mean, think about yeah. the Super Bowl, right? I mean, it was the bid committee was put together to earn the opportunity to host the Super Bowl. And then the real work began to actually execute and plan for a successful event. And this is something we're able to draw on so many people and resources in our state that have done these kind of things before. Um, but you're right. So the, the big things will be um, the bid committee will go out of existence because that committee was established to get the bid. 
there will be a host committee that will be established um, and we'll build a board and relationships around that. We'll work with, uh, this will convert from the primary federal entity being the State Department to the Department of Commerce to execute on this event. But in terms of Bloomington and the work that needs to be done, we'll need to build a management infrastructure First and foremost is the construction of the facilities on the site. I mean, that is by far the largest expenditure associated with the expo. We can talk about sources of revenue in a minute, but it will be <clears throat> preparing. Uh, there have already been, you know, this is kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? Because we're not taking anything for granted. We're not being cocky. We're being humble. I, I'm very conservative by nature, so I'm not assuming we're going to win. We're going to work this to the end. But if we're just in anticipation, we promised the BIE we would be able to execute on this event. There's not a lot of time between June 21st of this year and May 15th of 2027 to get all this in place. So we have to stand up a host committee. We have to get going on the development. There have already been discussions uh, with potential developers that may be interested in coming in and developing the site. We're going to have to have a structure that explores sponsorship, that begins the process of how do you sell tickets for this event, which is by far the single biggest revenue source. Mm -hmm. We're going to do something that we do really well in, in Minnesota, which is activate volunteers. We've got to focus on finances. We've got to focus on the construction project. We need to focus on building out the theme and the programming. I mean, it, in our conversations with the nations of the world, the nation members of the BIE, we have said it would be, in our view, a failure if this is just a 93-day event. We want programming before, we want visits before, we want during the event, and we want legacy impact. So we've got to get to work on building out the theme with the participation and involvement of nations across the world. So this is a, a very complex, and then, of course, as we get closer to the event, there will be all sorts of logistical things. Security, this will be a national security event, so there will be a lot of security around it. Um, there will be entertainment and food and the pavilions themselves designing that to reflect each country's culture and what they want to highlight out of this. Um, and, you know, just all the things that are, you know, contracts for participants. So there's a legal structure of this. It's a, it's a lot of work, but I have great confidence in the team that we've been building and those who have raised their hand to indicate interest will pull it out. But the real work begins the day after the vote, maybe the day after the day after the vote. Uh, but we're ready to jump on it to get prepared for this because this is this is one of the large. This is by um, attendance and revenue impact uh, by far the biggest event that our state would have seen. It's uh, if you think about it, it's like 93 Super Bowls or nine state fairs back to back to back in terms of numbers of people coming through. But the economic impact is far in excess uh, of any of those events. So this is, this is a big deal. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, those dollar amounts. What are we, what sure. are we talking about in terms of costs? If Bloomington wins the bid, what would be the big budget items and, and what would be the sources of funding for this four year enterprise to prepare the area uh, to host the event? Right. So we anticipate about a billion four of investment that's going to be needed. The, the, the biggest chunk of that is the development or the construction of the facilities. Now, we're hopeful that we will attract private developers who will want to develop this, own it, and operate it after the expo. Um, but the, addressing the construction, the construction costs are by far the biggest item. Then there are costs in terms of establishing all these other systems. How are we going to do ticketing? How are we going to, you know, we need to have an infrastructure to obtain corporate sponsorships. What's the revenue, in, you know, who are we going to have that's going to chase the revenue? How are we going to structure all these things? In terms of uh, the uh, how this thing cash flows, I mean, the, you know, the BIA would have not have allowed us to be found viable or go ahead with this if they weren't assured that the revenue from the event could support the expense related to the event. The one thing I would say on that, and part of the reason we want to attract private development, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to have a nonprofit organization own four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars of infrastructure at the end of this. It, it could cash flow. That wouldn't be the preferable thing. I mean, why would you want a nonprofit to own that kind of asset? So we're working on the private development front, but the revenue from this uh, comes primarily the largest chunk of it's from ticket revenue, um, fourteen point three million visitors, a price point of in the mid-50s, under $60 per visit, which is very competitive. Uh, that's not inflated. That's in today's terms. 
Uh, also, corporate sponsorships for this are a big ticket item. Uh, not that we're anticipating, but based on previous expos. Um, if you think about it, companies want to be delivering freight in and out of the sites. So who's going to have that kind of relationship? And would they be willing to be a sponsor to do that? In any category you can think of, uh, who's going to be offering their food and beverage services, for example, there? So there will be doing business discussions, but there will also be sponsorship discussions. And next to ticket revenue, uh, corporate sponsorships are the biggest line item in there. And then you go down the chain from to uh, licensing and merchandising rights. We're really looking at ways we can monetize um, countries that want to participate in the programming remotely uh, or visit remotely. How can we use technology to um, create a revenue source from those things? So we've got very diverse uh, revenue sources. And as I said, when the inquiry mission came, there was a whole section on the finances and we passed the test. So how that's going to be structured, how much will go, the specific amount of what will go into construction TBD, you know, how many of those are going to be permanent versus temporary structures? That depends on how many nations participate, the cost of goods and materials, cash flowing, all this. So there's a lot of work to be done on that. But on the uh, by far the biggest uh, chunk of expense will be construction of the facilities. And by far the biggest uh, revenue source will be from ticket revenue. Uh, John, before we get, I've, I've got some more questions about the facilities, yeah. but which 93 days of the year have you guys, or, or has the uh, uh, BIE selected to do this in 2027? Yeah. Middle of May till right before the state fair, or as we know it in Minnesota, our sweet spot, right? So we're, we're going to show international visitors the best that we have to offer, the lakes, the beauty, and our people. You know, I mean, we have a marvelous state from north to south, east to west. We're encouraging, you know, some visitors that will come internationally We'll want to visit other locations in the United States, but we also want to tell them, you know, if you want an experience uh, with nature, stay in Minnesota. We have wonderful things to offer, but it's right in our sweet spot, and it'll be right before the state fair because, God forbid, we get on top of the state fair. That wouldn't be good. <laughs> no, you can't do that. You can't. <laughs> Even the World's no. Fair can't mess with the Minnesota State Fair. Um, right. I, I, I am curious about the... Uh, the details of the facility because there's just there's so much more than just the logistics and labor right. involved. I mean, you're hosting right. 93 consecutive Super Bowls, to use your words. Um, yeah, the, the the World Expo would be much more than even that. I mean, it it, it involves significant construction, um, facilities, infrastructure. Tell us about those plans. And you touched on the idea that you know we don't know what's going to be temporary, what's going to be permanent, but what are the possibilities there? Right. So some things that we know that will be constructed are the pavilion. So the United States will have a host pavilion that's traditional and expos that the host country does something that's special and spectacular. So there will be that. But we will also, again, and this is part of the calculation for how many countries will participate, we will build out pavilions that will host the nations of the world that want to come. And in that display fa uh, space, highlight attributes of their country. Uh, they're also going to want to showcase their foods and cultural attributes. And so spaces for both indoor and outdoor spaces where the participating nations of the world can participate, that's just table stakes. We will have to build pavilions that can house the physical structure of people coming to the expo. We're also looking at designing a conference center uh, or building a conference center because a lot of the seminars and symposium, you know, can't really be held in a very busy environment inside a pavilion and outdoor space. So there's going to need to be some space with breakout rooms that can accommodate different sizes of visitors. Um, we also, um, in the design that was proposed, and, you know, this will be a, a work in progress going forward if we're awarded the bid, have tremendous outdoor public spaces with water features, nature features, part of the theme of health and well-being. We want to have things people can do to walk the site, be physically active. Even in some of the pavilions, we're talking about things that can measure your blood pressure and do things like that. So um, all of those elements will come together, and uh, it will be determined to some degree by what countries are looking for what size of space they're looking for, and we will calibrate the development on that. But the core features will be the pavilions to host, um, entertainment areas, 
food and beverage areas and a conference center where we can host thing, uh, uh, seminars or programming related to the theme of healthy people, healthy planet. Those are kind of the core things we're looking at. And then, of course, as needs change or more or fewer countries participate, we'll calibrate accordingly. But those are some of the core things that we'll do. And then, of course, you know, the other thing is we want to make it possible and accessible and have people travel throughout the region as well and, you know, get into the Minnesota River uh, National Wildlife Area. And, you know, we have so many options in our community of the Twin Cities in the state of Minnesota that people can access. We've we've met a lot of, uh, you know, people are very impressed and don't really know. We have, you know, second largest capita number of theater seats in the country other than New York. Mm-hmm. And, museums and art and theater and sports so we want to make it a holistic experience and we can utilize a lot of facilities outside the site itself to accomplish that but those are the core things that we'll be looking to build what are the projections for job creation and revenue both for the four-year effort to uh, prepare for the event and and for any legacy benefits after the expo is completed Right. So um, about 14.3 million visitors. We we've we had an independent firm uh, do the assessment of visitors that would come, how much they would spend to uh, track economic impact. We're projecting two point five billion dollars of economic impact. Net new taxes for Minnesota and the region would be are estimated at three hundred and sixty five million dollars that would come from visitors to the expo. So that's incremental revenue about another $360 million on a national basis in terms of revenue from visitors that will come and spend their money and time in the United States. Uh, 33,000 jobs, we estimate, will be created with an average wage of $55,000 for those jobs. And that will be, you know, everything through the construction process, through the workers that will come, through security, transportation, all the things that we'll have to staff up for. Uh, for the expo, but this is a significant economic development uh, opportunity for the state of Minnesota. And as I pointed out earlier, I mean, it's our hope, desire, and it's just it just has to happen that this will not be leading up to and for 93 days. This will have economic impact that will put people in those buildings and create jobs in those buildings that will exist after the expo is over. So the impact, we believe, will be greater, but just through the event itself, those are the numbers we've been working with that have been uh, not only projected by a professional term, uh, a firm that does this, but they were also validated by PricewaterhouseCoopers, who, you know, we kind of said, this is what we're proposing, stress test this for us. Before the inquiry mission comes, tell us where we have vulnerabilities or tell us what your view is on how this holds up. And they said, well, the good news for you is it holds up. So we've had that validated, and then we had to defend it with the BIE as well. But those are some of the number metrics in terms of the impact. So it will be significant. And if we are looking at this on a bar chart, in terms of attendance, economic impact, duration of events, think of some of the big things we've hosted, whether it be a Final Four, the Republican National Convention, uh, Super Bowls, um, et cetera, et cetera. This is by far the largest number of visitors and largest impact uh, economically for our state and region of any of those events. So it's a, it's a big deal. <laughs> John, I, I've heard skeptics uh, talk about the the fact that really the the only thing you can compare this to would be um, hosting uh, the Olympics, which is famously not a uh, a money making endeavor for the for the host city. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've got you've got great estimates here. Um, where where can we? Uh, what can we say about uh, uh, about that? You know, people think of, want to compare this to the Olympics, and then then they think of you know six months after the Olympics are over, they see pictures of abandoned facilities and overgrown uh, you know arenas and things things of this nature. Why will this be different? And what specific plans are in place to ensure long term functional legacy for for Bloomington right. after the Expo? That. That is a, it's a great question. I think one of the things that distinguishes it from an Olympics, and again, you know, one thing I might add on this is we will be in a cycle where the United States will be celebrating its 250th birthday at the tour during this expo. We can celebrate that. We will also be hosting the World Cup and the Olympics coming up. So this is a shot in the arm for the United States. But one thing I think distinguishes it from the Olympics is the Olympics is really facility driven. If you think about all the sports that are involved, 
accommodating those attendance figures of people that want to participate. We don't have to build multiple structures, and that's one way it's different. It is like 93 Super Bowls back-to-back, but we only have to build the stadium, if you will, once for this. I mean, it will be used for all of those times. And those facilities that go up in Bloomington, it is everyone's view that those should have legacy use, that that we will, hopefully related to the theme of healthy people, healthy planet, health and well-being for all, there will be uses for that after the expo. So these are not facilities that are going to sit vacant because they weren't put up for a sporting event that was one time related to a particular unique sport. And as we've all watched the Olympics over the years, you think about the facilities, unbelievable. Some of them that are remote from the location because they need to be in the mountains for alpine skiing or whatever it might be. You also have to have development of hotels and other infrastructure that goes with that we don't have those costs we don't first of all the existing hotel infrastructure in the twin cities is sufficient in today's terms to accommodate and that's without including airbnb future hotel expansions and so on so i would say that one of the things that distinguishes us is a lot of the infrastructure for the hospitality and tourism elements are already in place so we're talking about constructing structures that will be used after this and aren't for uh, such a unique, specific purpose that they can't be reused. So that's one of the things I think distinguishes this. John Stanek, we have just a couple minutes remaining and we'd like to give you the final word this morning. What didn't we ask you that we should have asked you about World Expo 2027 and the public policy challenges and opportunities it will bring to Bloomington and surrounding communities? Floor is yours. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for the time to chat with you today. I mean, again, I go back to where I started, that the theme of your programming, when we talk about solutions to move all of us forward, that's what we're all about at the Expo. And it's not just for Minnesota, the United States, it's for the world. And that's pretty heady stuff, but it's also pretty darn cool. I'll just take my remaining time to say I am so thankful for our board Uh, for the visionaries who led the effort to get the United States back into the BIE, who made the previous proposal that we've built on in connection with this. We have a phenomenal board of directors, our supporters, um, both in the public sector and the private sector and the civic center sector. The the work that's been put into this by multiple people, um, we literally could not have done this. It, It takes a village, and this has been a village effort. So I'm deeply appreciative of all the people that have pitched in to help with this, including our partners at the federal government who have been terrific. And the final point, I guess, that I would make is that as a lifelong Minnesotan, and I've often said that I was born in Minnesota, I'm going to die in Minnesota unless I'm on vacation. (laughs) This is really important to us as Minnesotans. It's who we are. Um, We've had some tough times recently, you know, um, COVID, uh, the murder of George Floyd, there have been any number of things, you know, the, 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 the slow return of the workforce into some of our core cities. We have challenges, but the thing that distinguishes us as a community and a state, we're looking forward for a better future. We've been given much by previous generations, and I have been so proud as a Minnesotan to be part of this effort where not only do I get to advance in concert with others, the interests of the region and the state of Minnesota, but carrying the banner and the flag of the United States of America. And I know if we get this bid, this is going to have legacy impact for Minnesota, for our region. And I think we need that looking forward energy because it's what we do as Minnesotans. We do things that are visionary, forward looking, and we do it well to build a stronger community for all. That's exciting stuff to be a part of. And I'm so appreciative of the people that put their efforts in And I'm so honored to be part of this effort, but it's going to be great for Minnesota, great for the nation and great for our future. Well, your commitment to the project and your passion for the project are are palpable. And no no uh, question, this has been an enlightening and enjoyable conversation. And I wish you and all of the folks who have worked hard to bring uh, Expo 2027 to Minnesota, the best of luck with the vote next month. Um, Unfortunately, this is where we must end our program. John Stanek, Rich and I want to thank you for the conversation and for your insights this morning. Yeah, I want to thank you guys. It's been a pleasure. I want to echo that. And I'd like to say, uh, whichever way the vote goes next month, I would like, how do we get you to run Minnesota tourism for the next 10 years? John? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I'm getting to be an old guy, but, you know, we uh, that's the other thing. You know, we can't lose from this. We want to win, make no mistake, but we've positioned ourselves on the international map with these. So the work will continue regardless of outcome. It'll be much, much, much better if we win, but this isn't the end of it. This is going to be something that we will continue to work on because it's good for our state, and who who's not for that? Right, <laughs> exactly. Well, that's going to conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We are on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock a.m. I'm Nathan Leaf, and my co-host today has been Rich Larson. Don't forget to join us next week when we discuss population demographics in Minnesota. The the objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll be here again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.